good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Professor Michael Cox. I'm in the Department of International Relations here at the London School of Economics. I'm also co-director of a Center for Strategy and Diplomacy, uh, which has the name of Ideas. Uh, there can be no more important relationship, I think, for us to be discussing openly at the London School of Economics than the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the uh, United States. It has always faced challenges that constantly test its strength. However, as we know, recent events in the region, such as the Iraq War, uh, the 2006 war in Lebanon, and more recently the war in Gaza have strained this relationship. And we're very pleased to welcome here today Prince Turki Al-Faisal, who has a long and extensive experience in this area, who will give his personal insights into this most important relationship, its historical development, and future challenges and prospects. Uh, Prince Turki served as the ambassador to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to the United States of America from 2005 to 2007. He's one of the founders of the King Faisal Foundation and is the chairman of the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies in Riyadh. Uh, Prince Turki also served as the ambassador to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia um, in the United Kingdom uh, from 2003 to 5, and for 25 years he held the position of General Director of Saudi General Intelligence. Uh, Prince Turki, unfortunately, did not do his degree here at the LSE, um, but he graduated from uh, Lawrenceville School in Lawrenceville, New Jersey in 1963, and subsequently earned a bachelor's degree in 1968 from Georgetown University. Uh, Prince Turki, you're welcome here at the LSE, and we look forward to hear what you have to say on this most important of topics. I hope we can welcome you in the normal fashion. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim wa salatu wa salam ala afdal al-mursaleen Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. I thank uh, Faisal al-Salloum for inviting me to speak to this distinguished audience. Uh, Professor Michael Cox, the events chair, for agreeing for me to do so. And Director Sir Howard Davies for being responsible for everything at the London School of Economics. I did not graduate from LSE, but my son did. And when I attended his graduation, there was also another famous student of LSE graduating at the same time, Ms. Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this only shows how diverse the student population is at the LSE. Um, ladies and gentlemen, an old Arab proverb says, Sadiqaka man sadaqaka la man saddaqaka. Loosely translated, it means your friend is he who tells you the truth, not he who tells you what you want to hear. And I address this august gathering in that spirit. Europe has a leading role to play in reaching peace in the Middle East. Historically, the heritage and inheritance of European culture from the Greeks and Romans to the Renaissance and the Age of Enlightenment 
have their roots in the culture of the Middle East. From Pharaonic Egypt through the Phoenicians to the Sumerians and the Persians, and finally through the Arabs and the Ottomans. Without Pharaonic mathematics, there would not have been a Euclid. And without a Hammurabi, there would not have been a Socrates, a Plato, or an Aristotle, and an Archimedes. And without these, there would not have been a Khawarizmi, or an Ibn Sina, or an Ibn Rushd, or an Ibn al-Haytham. In turn, without these, there would not have been an Aquinas, or a Galileo, or a Bacon, or a Descartes. The age of colonization followed the, from, and Europe's dominance over the Middle East has left us with the present geographic, economic, and political interaction that calls for European action to resolve the conflicts inherited from that age. The thumbprint of Europe is all over today's conflicts in the Middle East. Palestine is a direct result of Britain's abandonment of its mandatory responsibilities in 1947. Iraq's geography and ethnic composition are the result of the map drawn by Mr. Sykes and Mr. Pico after the First World War. The dispute over Shab'a farms between Syria and Lebanon remains from French colonial days. For Europe to sit on the sidelines while the Israelis and Palestinians struggle to find an agreement that will bring peace is not acceptable. Europe is the largest contributor of aid to the Palestinians. Europe is the largest trading partner of Israel, and European Jews are the third largest Jewish community outside Israel. These are assets that can be applied to pressure both sides when they get stuck for definitions or ideas. In Iraq, and before the inevitable American withdrawal, Europe can support the United Nations Security Council resolution protecting Iraq's territorial integrity under Chapter 7, thereby denying internal Iraqi centrifugal forces that seek to dismember Iraq. Those neighbors of Iraq who seek economic or political or geographic advantage at Iraq's expense will be equally checked. Europe can equally work for a Middle East free of weapons of mass destruction with a security and incentive blanket for the countries who accept and the sanctions regime for those who don't. This will remove the double standard with which the Iranian leadership justifyingly accuses the Europeans and Americans on dealing with nuclear enrichment. Israel's security concerns are addressed by the nuclear security blanket like Japan and Germany. Put a level playing field for everybody, and then you can ask all to play. Other actions by, by Europe can be helpful. To the north of Palestine is Lebanon, where Europe and especially France have a distinct responsibility to be actively engaged. Europe should ask Israel to withdraw immediately from the Shab'a farms. This will remove the issue of national liberation from Hezbollah's arsenal and allow for Lebanese politicians to negotiate a national reconciliation based on national interest rather than on fighting a national liberation war. Both Iran and Syria will be equally denied the banner of fighting the occupation in Lebanon. Europe should also encourage Syrian-Israeli negotiations to achieve peace. 
This will deal a blow to Iranian meddling in the Arab world and force those Palestinian factions based in Damascus to emulate Syria. Ladies and gentlemen, a German acquaintance remarked that the Mediterranean Sea is not the border of Europe. Rather, it is a conduit between Europe and Africa. The border, he said, is the Sahara Desert. On reflection, there is much wisdom in that thought. So North Africa, from Egypt to Mauritania, should be part of Europe. President Sarkozy's Mediterranean Union addresses that issue and is another tool in Europe's arsenal to use with the Palestinians and Israelis. It follows the Barcelona process and the European neighborhood policy. I hope that it will succeed where the others have failed. All of these attempts at Mediterranean common interests have ignored the Gulf Cooperation Council countries and Iraq and Yemen. We see today the failure of Europe to reach a free trade agreement with the GCC countries still. This is unacceptable. Trading recrimination as to who is to blame will get us nowhere. Europe is the larger and more powerful economic and political union. It is more able to compromise than the smaller and younger council in the Gulf. If issues of human rights and freedoms are the obstacle, then how does Europe justify its elevation of its relations with Israel in all levels by next year? This was announced at the European Union Foreign Ministers' meeting. The United Nations Rapporteur on Human Rights, Dr. Richard Falk, has issued a stinging rebuke to Israel because of its treatment of Palestinians and ignoring their human rights. He was thrown out of Israel before he could further study the situation in Palestine. Such a double standard by Europe should not and cannot stand, especially from a Europe that consistently lectures us about these issues. Monsieur Kushner has said that this action, elevating Israel's status with the European Union, has no political implications. In any definition of the word political, elevation of cooperation in all fields is most definitely political. While the world is enduring economic disaster, such treatment by Europe of one of its best trading partners is short-sighted and meaningless. Europe cannot ask the GCC countries to increase their investments in Europe while ignoring the GCC's legitimate requirements and aspirations. Other partners of the GCC are treating us with consideration and mutual respect. If Europe continues to disregard these realities, the GCC will turn to the other partners for expansion of mutual benefits. Ladies and gentlemen, in 1982 and 2002, Saudi Arabia presented two peace proposals to the Arab League, which were adopted by all Arab countries. The first one was divide, devised by the late King Fahad and the second one was made by the then Crown Prince, now King Abdullah. Israel has refused both. So while the Arab countries have turned 180 degrees and are now committed to peace as a choice, Israel, which for years has claimed to seek peace, has made war its choice. We have only to look at its devastation of Gaza 
for proof of this. Just listen to what Netanyahu and Lieberman are saying. The Arab Peace Initiative, ladies and gentlemen, will not remain an offer forever. I say to my Palestinian brothers, don't give up the struggle, but conduct yourselves cleverly. Give up these firecrackers which you call rockets. You are merely giving your enemy an excuse to brutally massacre your brethren. Give up suicide bombings. They make you surrender the moral high ground to your enemy. Fight your enemy with your best weapon, your humanity. Follow the examples of Gandhi and Martin Luther King, and the whole world will stand behind you. Even the majority of the Israeli people will force their army to relent, as they did during the first Intifada. Remember that every drop of Palestinian blood should count. Don't waste them by childish bickering over ephemeral and fleeting political gains. This country, ladies and gentlemen, has had a lamentable and unforgivable history with us. In 1917, it bequeathed a national homeland for the Jews in Palestine. And while it guaranteed that there will not be infringements on the rights of the native population as a mandatory power, it did just that. When the Palestinians protested such infringements, British forces brutally crushed these protests while allowing more and more Jewish immigrants into Palestine. After the Second World War, and instead of working to prepare the native population for self-determination, as the terms of the mandate dictated, Britain abandoned this, this responsibility and turned over the Palestinian issue to the newly formed United Nations. A worse record of irresponsible management has not been equaled in post-colonial history. When I was ambassador in London not too long ago, and whenever I conversed with British politicians to whichever party they belonged about Palestine, more frequently than not, they would start by saying, and I quote, I am a friend of Israel, as if to tell me we will look after Israel's interests. I did not expect anything else. But today, and as the brutal Israeli occupation of Palestine goes into its 43rd year with its continued stealing of Palestinian lands, its collective punishment against all the Palestinians for the acts of individuals, its demolitions of Palestinian homes and farms, its arbitrary arrests without warrants or legal representation of men, women, children, and old people, its targeted killings, its roadblocks and neighborhood closures, its continued building of the apartheid wall, which the World Court has declared illegal, I do expect something from all Britons. I tell all of those who say that they are friends of Israel, whether they are Jews or Gentiles, that Israel needs you to push aside those who would work to maintain what is morally and legally unacceptable, namely the occupation of another people by armed force. They promote the ugly face of a militaristic, chauvinistic, and bullying Israel that adheres to a philosophy of might makes right, 
my way or the highway. You, ladies and gentlemen, must end this desecration of the soul of Israel. For surely that is where these enemies of Israel have taken her. When I now speak to all British politicians, ladies and gentlemen, I expect each one of them to tell me I am a friend of Palestine. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Prince Turkey. I'm, I'm glad you were not diplomatic. Um, uh, we're not very keen on diplomats at the LSE. We much prefer a proper discussion on the key issues, which cannot be always resolved by diplomatic discourse. Now, uh, we, uh, the Prince will answer questions until about 10.2, so I will take questions which will be short and sharp and to the point. I'm known as a very, very tough chair. I'll take this gentleman here, if you could, uh, and if you could use the microphone too. Please, a, a question and not another Titus Lucas. May I ask who you are, sir? Yeah, please, could you introduce us? Titus Lucas, Softcare UK. Um, in terms of armed conflicts, um, your premise, does that apply solely to countries or to families? Because, indeed, Saudi Arabia was formed through armed conflict. Well, I think the times have changed since Saudi Arabia um, united uh, to become Saudi Arabia. So uh, methods must change with the times. And I think the, the, the fact that today's world has become a village where reflections of, of happenings in one area can immediately affect the whole world, especially by the use of the media and the internet, so you have to change with the times. And I, as I said in my presentation, the moral high ground is very important for our Palestinian brothers today to occupy and to make it their call rather than being accused of either being terrorists or bloodthirsty uh, killers. And it is from that aspect that I would um, suggest to my Palestinian brothers that they pursue civil disobedience as a means of achieving their independence from an occupation which everybody recognizes is even more brutal today than it was 40 years ago when it started. Okay, gentlemen here, if you could... Uh, Ranjiv Gunawardner here. Um, my question is, uh, why is it so strong, the Jewish lobby globally, especially in America and Europe, and when you try to get your message across, you don't get the same adherence, as you mentioned earlier, when you were speaking to parliamentarians, they have this Jewish uh, lobby factor saying, we are friends of uh, Israel. Why can't they play a fair role in this episode? Well, I think we have much to learn from our Jewish cousins in this case, because they work harder at it than we do. Mm -hmm. And uh, hard work gets you results. And you see that not just in this country, but in America and all over the world. They're very concentrated on what the, their interests are, especially when it comes to supporting Israel. And therefore, if there is anything we as Arabs and Muslims and non-Arabs and non-Muslims who have particular concerns to be dealt with, um, we can learn from, from their activities and benefit from their experience. Mm. There's a gentleman here, please. Yeah. Salaam alaikum. My name is Ehsan from the Iranian News Agency. 
Uh, this session was supposed to be about the relations between Saudi Arabia and the United States, but uh, you talked about... Well, we thought we'd do Europe for a change. For the Europe, yeah. <laughs> we talked too much about the United States, and I'm very pleased the Prince did devote the... Uh, but if you want to ask the American question or whatever, yeah, please. No, uh, I was just uh, want to know that you said that uh, you and your government are supporting the Palestinian cause. But we see in, in the media there are some reports that saying that uh, Saudi officials have covertly met with Israeli officials. Is that in, in line with the cause of the Palestinians that you are supporting? Well, whatever you hear in the press is not necessarily the truth. And well, you come from that medium, so you should know better. But um, the, uh, you've seen that report, and I'm sure you've seen the, the immediate uh, statement put out by my government denying that such a meeting uh, took place. And uh, if I am not mistaken, I would also refer to Iran's position on Palestine and uh, the fact that two things. One is that um, Israeli weapons and, and armaments were secretly delivered to Iran during the Iran-Contra affair in the 1980s, uh, thereby uh, showing that connection with Israel is not unique to, uh, to Arab countries. Uh, and another thing is that uh, while Iran has publicly and, uh, and uh, vociferously expressed its support for, for the Palestinians and for the Arabs in general, our foreign minister has said that we are grateful for Iran in having taken that position, but we would like to see that support going through the legitimate channels in the Arab world, uh, and for Iran to be working towards bringing the Arabs together rather than dividing them into uh, one camp or, or another. The lady over here. Hello, Ali Ambayed from Barclays Capital, uh, economist. Um, I'm interested in your view, uh, Mr. Faisal, on the U.S.-Iran rapprochement and how does Saudi Arabia look at it in terms particularly of its, um, I mean, the, the geopolitics in the Middle East. And I'm interested particularly with uh, your view on Lebanon, on, on the implication of such a rapprochement on Lebanon and on Iraq, uh, particularly that we're hearing recent polls in Lebanon saying that uh, there's a possibility for a March 8th movement to, uh, uh, and Hezbollah to, 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 to be um, majority to win the elections, I and mean, what would be your concerns? Iran and the United States, I think, should talk to, to each other. I, I, have, I don't think any of the Arab countries have a problem with that, um, particularly because we talk to the Iranians. And uh, King Abdullah has been very clear in his talk with uh, our Iranian uh, neighbors uh, on issues of mutual concern, whether it is on the um, Iranian occupation of the Gulf Islands, for example, the UAE uh, islands in the Gulf. Uh, the GCC countries have continually asked Iran to discuss this matter with the UAE and resolve it. Uh, on issues of interference in Arab affairs, uh, as I mentioned to you now, Prince Saud just recently uh, mentioned that uh, we welcome Iranian support, but we want it to go through legitimate channels uh, and not to be divisive in the Arab world. Uh, we, King Abdullah publicly has, uh, has 
said to uh, Iranian officials that they must uh, not interfere in Arab affairs, whether it is in Lebanon or Palestine or in other uh, areas. So on, on the political level, we engage fully and directly with, uh, with the Iranians in private and in public. So I don't see any problem in, in the United States speaking to, to Iran. Uh, recently, just a few days ago, I think yesterday or the day before, the, the uh, American uh, Secretary of Defense has been visiting uh, Saudi Arabia and Egypt, and he publicly said that uh, talks between the United States and Iran are not going to be at the expense of uh, the Arab countries. Uh, and when you talk about, uh, about Lebanon, whoever comes out the winner in the elections, hopefully it will be the, the group that the Lebanese people have elected themselves. And we'll cooperate over the representatives of the Lebanese people, whether they be from March 8th or March 14th. Uh, so uh, there is no uh, particular uh, um, uh, conflict in, in our position as to who is elected in, in Lebanon. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to abuse the position of the chair now and ask a question. Um, nobody's mentioned Barack Obama yet, so I think I better the man who walks on water, um, but particularly in Europe. Um, my question is really this. The, my, my impression traveling, traveling around the world is that the, the reception for Barack Obama outside of the United States uh, is very, very high, very, very positive, nowhere more than in Europe. All my American students now can stop pretending to be Canadians. <laughs> um, my, uh, and you know, I won't even begin to say his popularity in Kenya and Nigeria and sub-Saharan Africa and in large parts of the world. He's had an enormous impact. My question to you really is this, Prince Fines, Turkey, is, is I get the impression, and this is purely an impression, it's not scientific, um, it's this that there's more skepticism within the Middle East overall towards Barack Obama than in any other part of the world. I hear the story time and again that, well, he's going to do more or less the same thing as previous US presidents have done in the past. There's a little less faith in the Barack Obama factor, if I might put it like that. Do you think that's true or not? And do you disagree with, do you disagree with me? And if so, why? <laughs> well, as a starting point, we don't consider him so much as walking in water as being Barack Hussein Obama. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Excellent. Touche. I um, like that. <laughs> but, but you're absolutely right. Um, there is a skepticism, mm. and that skepticism derives from a long history of statements not followed by action. Mm on the part of United, of United States administrations. Um, definitely since his election, uh, President Obama has made all the right statements mm. that are required of him today in the present political situation to make, whether it is on the two-state solution, whether it is on American commitment to achieve peace. Um, his uh, first call as president was made to Mahmoud Abbas followed soon after by calls to heads of state in the Arab world. His first television interview was with an Arab television channel, and so on. Uh, his appointment of George Mitchell 
uh, of mm. course, with his, with Mitchell's proven experience as a peacemaker in Northern Ireland, uh, was uh, considered to be a very positive step to take. And two significant factors, in my view, are important in how we look on, or how, what we expect from Obama. And when uh, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, visited uh, the West Bank and Israel uh, a month ago or a month and a half ago, it was during the time when Israel evicted Palestinian families from their homes in Jerusalem. And she took on the Israelis publicly for the first time of an American official mm. in Jerusalem mm. on that issue and saying that it was wrong to do that. Uh, she also said publicly in Jerusalem that the Israeli settlements must stop in the West Bank and uh, Palestinian territory. Uh, that's one aspect. Uh, the other aspect is a few days back, I think a couple of days ago, the Vice President of, of the United States spoke at what is considered to be, if you like, the, uh, the, uh, the hotbed of Israeli support in America, which is the IPAC uh, uh, meeting in, in Washington, in which the Vice President said, uh, I'm going to say things that this audience may not like, addressing a mostly Jewish uh, American audience and very strong supporters of Israel. And those things that he said were that the United States is committed to the two-state solution, that it is committed to making peace, and that settlements are not helpful in, uh, in, in advancing uh, peace in, uh, in, in the Middle East. Reports of uh, the chief of staff of Mr. Obama meeting with Jewish leaders along the IPAC uh, meeting in, in America also have been uh, very clear in saying that uh, Emmanuel was very tough with these Jewish leaders in saying that you must support the president in his two-state uh, solution promise and the commitment of the United States to achieve peace. All of this is talk. Uh, president Obama is ex expecting to meet uh, in the next couple of months or so with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel, uh, President Mahmoud Abbas, Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority, and President uh, Hosni Mubarak of Egypt. Uh, once these meetings are finished, uh, my assumption, and I may be wrong in this, is that President Obama is going to declare uh, where he stands on the issues of peace. And I've suggested to my American friends recently when I was attending a conference in Washington that uh, when Mr. Netanyahu, for example, or Mr. Mubarak or Mr. Mahmoud Abbas come and sit down with the president in the Oval Office, and each one of them begins by saying, Mr. President, let me tell you what I think of, he should cut them off immediately and say, no, no, Mr. Prime Minister, Mr. President, Mr. President, let me tell you what I think and what I want you to do to support what I believe. Mm. And it is important for American um, pressure to be put on all of the parties in the area, um, unlike previous, particularly the previous administration, which sort of made verbal statements. Some of them were wonderful. I mean, the two-state solution was verbalized by President Bush. 
Uh, and he talked, President Bush talked about the suffering of Palestinians under occupation. Mm -hmm. These were issues that were never mentioned by a president uh, before. But he sat back and let things happen without any pressure. And uh, when I was ambassador in the United States, I used to tell my American audiences that politicians, wherever they may be, but more particularly on issues that are in, in, in contest, uh, like the Palestinian-Israeli issue, um, in order to meet opposition from whoever is opposing them in their internal uh, political makeup, May you find it useful to point to a big bear pushing them and, and say, look, and we have to do this because this huge bear behind us uh, is pushing us. Yeah. Uh, this is how Camp David 1 was accomplished. Uh, this was how some other issues like uh, Begin's withdrawal from Lebanon in 1982 was accomplished, uh, and other such uh, factors uh, need to show that there is uh, an America that is fully engaged and is willing to use its muscle mm. to push these politicians so that they can not only act on these on these issues but also point to this big bear pushing them. Mm. Thank you very much. Right. Uh, there is a um, discriminating uh, in favor of one of our yeah. PhD students from the IR department. Uh, Filippo Dionigi, yes, thank you. Uh, say who you are. Uh, Filippo Dionigi, I'm an LSC student. Yes, speak and, up. Uh, uh, my question is that uh, how is the possible uh, success of the March 8 coalition in Lebanon in the next election may affect uh, Saudi foreign policies towards Lebanon and generally the Middle East? I just answer that. Um, we'll accept any, any government that the Lebanese people uh, elect. Okay, that's a gentleman here, please, if you could, yeah. yes, please. Uh, yeah, my name is Jonathan, I'm a first year law student here at the LSE. Uh, I'm just curious, so I'm going to ask you a hypothetical question. Um, I'll well, give you a hypothetical <laughs> answer. So, yeah. And I'll judge so, which is the best. So, so. Supposing, um, supposing you were to write a candid memoir about uh, your years as the director of the GID, what is it that you'd say in your concluding remarks? Was I to write what? Uh, a, a memoir. Uh, a memoir? Yeah about your years as director of uh, the yeah. GID in, uh, in Saudi. What is it that you, you know, you'd want to say in your concluding uh, remarks? Well, just maybe you don't want to say it. <laughs> exactly. No, no, no. Just, just let me answer that by saying that I remember when, when my late father was alive, uh, we and, and his friends always used to urge him to write his memoir. He had a 50-year history of political activity from when he was 13 years old until he died uh, at the age of 70. Uh, and, and so uh, we always urged him as his children and his friends and so on to, to write his, his memoirs. He never answered until finally one day uh, he just got fed up with all of our pressure and so on. And he turned to us and he said, look, if I write my memoirs, I have to be truthful in everything I write. And if I am truthful on everything that I write, I'm not going to have any more friends. <laughs> I think I will follow that sound advice from the late king. Well, I, I think you're making a lot of friends here today. Uh, the, the gentleman here has had his hand up for the last 10 minutes. You can now put your hand down, please, sir. Could you uh, tell us who you are? 
I can see you very well. You're a very large gentleman, and I will, I will bring you in very quickly. Don't worry. Sir. Laos Mower, the Embassy of the Czech Republic. Your Highness, uh, I wonder if you can tell us Saudi Arabia allegedly just currently facilitate the talks between Afghani government and Taliban. So if you can tell us what is it going on, how is it going on, and according to your opinion, what condition must be fulfilled for the reconciliation in Afghanistan? Thank you. Thank you very much. And then we'll go to the gentleman at the back there, because I think he's... I'm not in the loop. I'm not in the loop on what is happening uh, between the Taliban and the Afghan government. I read the papers like you do. And uh, what I know is that there was a meeting last year in the kingdom between representatives of the Afghan government at the request of the Afghan government and uh, the Taliban. And uh, there was an agreement between those who met to carry forward such uh, meetings in maybe other places. Uh, That's the limit of my my knowledge of what is happening on that particular point. But I will add another thing I think which is important. Today, I think in Afghanistan, when you say Taliban, in the West, there seems to be an impression that the Taliban are a cohesive, and uh, um, a a unified uh, political or military or cult group that operates as a unit uh, wherever it is. And I think that's the wrong impression. Uh, The Taliban are as diverse as as any tribal society is in its uh, its composition. It is not only composed of, of tribal leaderships from different parts of Afghanistan, but also of some criminal Uh, uh, groups that are taking advantage of the lack of central authority in Afghanistan and perhaps even regional uh, powers uh, within Afghanistan from the various provinces that seek certain advantages. So uh, it is important on the West uh, who are providing the military uh, force in Afghanistan, whether it is the United States and or NATO, to distinguish between who is Taliban and who is not. President Obama in his, in his uh, campaign speeches talked about uh, the real enemy as being the terrorists in Afghanistan. And he used that word. He didn't say the Taliban. He said the terrorists. And I think that is the right way to go about the issue in Afghanistan. Concentrate on getting those who commit terrorism of whatever origin they may be. Afghan, Arab, uh, Chechen, uh, Uyghur, uh, uh, Pakistani, uh, etc. And get those, those, those terrorists by devoting all of the necessary resources, whether they be uh, military, economic, or political. And once you get either by capture or by uh, killing the, the terrorists in the border area between Afghanistan and Pakistan, I believe the United States and NATO should then declare victory and withdraw their military forces from Afghanistan. I think the more that the military remain in Afghanistan, the more they create enemies within Afghanistan. In today's paper, I saw the report of yesterday's bombing of an Afghan uh, village where more Afghan civilians were killed than perhaps Taliban or Qaeda 
people. And that, that scenario is repeated not only in Afghanistan, but also across the border in Pakistan. Mm. And the more you kill civilians, the more you create enemies for you. So the US and, and, and NATO uh, should concentrate on who the real enemy is, not the Afghan people, definitely not the Pakistani people, but those who would commit terrorism under whatever name and under whatever guise. And once they're they are eliminated, the military should be withdrawn. I've got a gentleman here, then a gentleman. But take two together now. Yeah, um, Nick Mahal, I know there's a lot of hands up, and I'm trying my best here. I'm a yeah. student at the LSE, and I was wondering what you believe, in your opinion, would be the implications of uh, Iran obtaining a nuclear power capability? And second, what would be the implications for Saudi Arabia if uh, right. Israel were to exercise military power in neutralizing that development? Okay, so well, Thank you. WMD question. And then gentleman at the back. Yes. <coughs> Mohammed Tamat, a journalist, as you know, your Royal Highness. Uh, the question is uh, about Palestine. Anyway, uh, there is an approach stating that by uh, that by uh, you know uh, murdering uh, Ahmed Yassin and isolating Yasser Arafat and maybe murdering him, Israel has uh, uh, achieved nothing. And uh, at the end, you know, uh, they could at least you know have somebody to talk to. Today, they don't. So, uh, do you agree with with such an approach that uh, Israel contributed in in aborting the peace process itself. And uh, the other brief question, how can, you know, uh, the... Be, be fair with me. Make it one, please. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I, I There's mean, no such thing as a brief question. Just, just never two, words, two words. Uh, how can the Saudi diplomacy contribute in, in, in defending the right of resistance uh, for the Palestinians, of course, without killing civilians? Yeah, that's 22 words. The WMD question and then on the... Uh, on the question, does Israel want peace? I mean, I think that was the basis of the question, really. On the WMD, uh, as I said in my proposal, in my, in my uh, statement, um, the Middle East should be free of weapons of mass destruction, period. Just a minute. And, and so whether it is Iran developing nuclear weapons or Israel or Saudi Arabia or Turkey, I think that is the wrong way to go about it. Now, our foreign minister has said publicly before that two nightmares that we face in Saudi Arabia on this issue. One is Iran developing nuclear weapons, and the other is the United States or Israel taking military action to prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons. Each will have catastrophic consequences. So here is the, 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 uh, the scenario that, that the kingdom believes in. And hence the proposal that the United Nations Security Council should support a Middle East free of weapons of mass destruction. And this proposal has come out of the GCC summit meetings in recent years. It was recently also uh, re-issued uh, by the Arab League summit in Doha. And we think this is the proper way to go about it. And as I said, if you have a playing field for everybody, then you can ask everybody to play. But if you use the double standard or single out one country from another, you're not going to go anywhere. Uh, and so this is where Saudi Arabia stands on, on that issue. And on the issue of Israel, um, 
Again, I would say that, that uh, as I said in my, in my presentation, Israel has not yet chosen uh, the, the choice of, of, of peace. It is maneuvering, it is delaying, it is intriguing, it is doing all of the uh, uh, complicating uh, things that could be done uh, not to allow for implementation of the peace in the area. But there is a responsibility as well on the Palestinian side. You can't have two governments in Palestine. It is simply unacceptable from any point of view that Gaza should be ruled by Hamas and the West Bank ruled by Fatah. Mahmoud Abbas and the leaders of Hamas should be working to achieve a uh, government of national unity. No matter what it takes, I think it is inexcusable for either of them to try to gain political advantage or whatever ephemeral uh, uh, benefits may be accruable in the short term uh, for either of them. Uh, so whether Israel killed Yasser Arafat, that is something that is still not yet uh, certain, but there are investigations, as you know, by Palestinian authorities on that issue. Uh, their elimination of Ahmed Yassin definitely was a means of cutting off the heads, as it were. And uh, people within the Israeli government today are talking about um, eliminating leaderships, whether in Hamas or otherwise. Uh, so that is not uh, an indication that Israel wants peace. Uh, and I think when, when Netanyahu um, says we will talk economics, we will talk uh, development, we will talk uh, political issues, and he divides them in these three factors, he's merely um, uh, obfuscating and, and uh, being very, very ingenuous in his, in his proposals. He doesn't want to talk peace. Uh, he wants um, more continued settlements in the West Bank and Gaza. He wants more um, uh, uh, Israeli advantages uh, established on the ground and for the future to, uh, to, uh, to decide where those uh, will go. Uh, so it is incumbent on the Palestinians to prevent the Israelis from pointing to them and saying, we have nobody to talk to. I'm going to take two very quick questions. I, I almost feel like that Norwegian referee last night. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the gentleman here very quickly, and uh, last, my friend over there, please. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, a, I'm a not a first-year student. I graduated in 65, a competing uh, com uh, institution, the Wharton School. But anyway, I'm an Israeli businessman from Tel Aviv, and since I have a very rare opportunity to meet somebody of your caliber, I'm very happy for the occasion and thank you. Uh, the spirit of English democracy. This word wasn't used in this presentation today. <laughs> and uh, maybe you can uh, uh, reconcile uh, this conflicting, confusing image of Israel while using uh, very uh, negative terms, uh, Israel mastering all its resources to uh, occupy and oppress and fight and kill. How can you explain to this audience, where does Israel take the resources and time to invent the two leading drugs for MS, multiple sclerosis in the world, come from Teva 
and another company. Whether these have the time to provide all the internet users with firewall, like checkpoint, whether Israel have the idea of coming with drip irrigation, which is used also in Saudi and other countries, we are very happy yeah. to contribute to the world what a democracy can achieve, the best in human talent and capabilities. How can this live with the same image that you have of okay. Israel? Okay, thank And I'll take one question from one of our very welcome Saudi students here at the LSE. Uh, Adla Trafi, a PhD student at LSE. Uh, thank and you. And a good spokesman on NBC, I see. Oh, thanks a lot. Yeah, very good student uh, he is too. We're, we're working very hard on him lately. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have a question, Your Royal Highness, uh, about Iranian enrichment. Uh, uh, there was a proposal by the GCC uh, two years ago uh, regarding uh, suggesting to Iran that enrichment can continue in another, another third country. And uh, since that, we haven't heard from the GCC countries any engagement, hard engagement with Iran in trying to resolve the enrichment issue. Okay, we'll have to have some brief answers here. With pleasure. Um, on the Israeli issue, uh, I think, as I told my friend here who talked about the, the Jewish uh, lobby, that uh, Israelis work harder than we do. Um, but I would put the question to you. Uh, how do you reconcile? such developments in Israel on science, on, on thought in general, on achievements in, in technology and so on, while at the same time you continue to oppress a people, steal their lands, destroy their homes, kill their leaders, and do all of the things that I mentioned there. The reconciling these issues is as much uh, a, a necessity for Israelis as it is a necessity for us. And it is from that aspect that I think those who call themselves friends of Israel should work on getting Israel to give up its occupation so that there will not be this dichotomy of a brutal and, and, and oppressive colonial regime in Palestine by armed force while at the same time, an Israel that invents medicines, that invents uh, irrigation uh, uh, techniques, that contributes to one of the highest numbers in terms of Jewish, not just Israeli, winners of the Nobel Prizes, whether in medicine or, or science and so on. So you, as friends of Israel and as, a, as, as an Israeli, there is a responsibility on you to convince your government to lift that occupation of, 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 of Palestine. And on, on Iran, uh, um, yes, the, the, I think it was Prince Saud who made the proposal that there should be a nuclear enrichment plant financed by the area, including Iran, and placed in, in somewhere acceptable to all the countries in the area that would provide uh, the kind of, of uh, enrichment uh, facility for, for civilian use uh, of, uh, of nuclear energy. But the Iranians have not responded to, to that proposal as far as I know. Uh, if there was any uh, direct government-to-government -government response, uh, I'm not aware of that. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. You'll be most generous. <laughs>